Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 81, Living an Authentic Life. Welcome. My name is Lori Krieg, and I am the executive director of Hole in My Heart Ministries, and we are coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I am here with licensed therapist and Argyle expert in Argyle today, and my husband, Matt. Yeah, you've you've definitely put it on my heart that I need to wear Argyle every time we do the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you know it. <laughs> we also have our producer and the most professional radio voice among us, producer Steve. Bonjour. Bonjour. Today, we have the privilege of talking with someone many people, myself included, admire a lot because of her courage to lean into the face of the storm of life with authenticity, humility, and courage. And her name is Anne Voskamp. Anne, welcome. Such a gift to be with you all. Thank you for your grace and hospitality. For sure. So glad to have you here. For those of you who don't know Anne, she is a farmer's wife and home educating mama to seven. She's the author of New York Times bestsellers, 1000 Gifts and the Broken Way, among other bestselling books. And Anne was named by Christianity Today as one of the leading 50 women most shaping culture and the church today. Her greatest passion is partnering with Compassion International, and she says that telling her brokenhearted story is simply telling how the greatest story ever told has completely changed hers. Amen and amen. And Anne, we are so excited to dive more into your story as we look at this story, God's story, and our own through this theme of authenticity. But before we dive deeply in there, we are going to look at the question of the week from last week. And so, Anne, we'll start with you. This was the question we asked our listeners. And if you guys want to respond to this, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at podcast at HIMHministries.com. But the question is, what were you modeled or taught to do with your emotions growing up? Share them or bury them or open up and emphasize certain ones, perhaps like anger. And what was it modeled or or what did you learn about emotions growing up? Mm. (laughs) Yeah. So my first memory is my um, four-year-old, I was four years old. My little sister was killed in front of my mother and I. And Mm -hmm. my parents really struggled with understandably profound grief and what to do with all of those feelings. And as a little girl, I didn't want to talk about my feelings and be a burden to anybody else who was already dealing with their own heartbreak and um, their own weight of grief. So I really, I ended up just processing internally myself. And it, as I got older, it really was about journaling all of the time. So I processed my feelings on a page so that I didn't have to burden anybody face to face with my feelings. So that's still probably, honestly, Lori, the way I still work out a lot of feelings. (laughs) Which could be very healthy uh, in in many, many ways. It's true. My husband says, you know, you writing is in lots of ways cheap therapy. (laughs) Oh, we get that. I feel you there. Hey, Matt, how about you? Which listener did you resonate with and, and why is that so? Yeah, I really resonated with what Amy was saying, um, just in, in talking about her her tendency to kind of bottle things up and keep them very constrained into a specific level and time period. Um, and she said that her parents didn't talk much about sadness and fear um, and didn't usually discourage her from opening up either, but was, um, you know, it was definitely something where she felt like if, if it went on too long, she was supposed to cheer up and get mm-hmm. over it. And, and I, I feel like that is a lot of my own kind of story. My, my family, we didn't really talk about a lot of emotions. And so everything was kind of, Hey, let's keep it in the middle. 
Um, don't rock the boat. So no super high, no super low, and just mm-hmm. you know steady eddy type of type of thoughts growing up. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. How about you, Steve? Uh, well, I liked what Sooner Mommy Two said <laughs> on social media. I was taught to stuff and not talk about feelings. Uh, when I did something wrong, my mom would write me this long letter, leave it in my room. I would read it, but we would never process anything. Um, and this has made a lot, a lot of things extremely hard in my marriage, she says. Uh, but then she had a breakdown and started doing uh, listening prayer counseling. And uh, the, during that time, a lot of lies that she had believed and uh, like traumatic things that took place in her childhood started to surface. And she says, I've worked through so many things in the past three years. It was terribly hard, but I'm much a, a much better person today because of it. And now I'm trying to raise my kids differently where we process and talk and speak truth and get rid of those lies early That's good. so i really respect that um i would say for me I, I mean like as a kid it was like emotions what like what is <laughs> what, what does that word mean you know yeah. like in my home it was just kind of not acknowledged and i think being the oldest and the only boy i had a lot of time by myself so i kind of mm-hmm. processed just through my imagination i think and listening to music and so it was just more of the solitary kind of um, processing and I I guess sort of by default things get stuffed or at least not fully processed oh Uh, yeah yeah I appreciated what Avril had to say she said my parents encouraged my siblings and I to talk about our emotions so difference Mm. at the end of each school day or activity we'd all take turns sharing how things went how we felt etc Joyous Mm. moments and heartbreaking moments were shared. We were all bullied a lot. So to know that home was a safe place to share all of that junk was such a gift. Mm. We were truly welcomed to lament and vent. Wow! So this Mm. was a rare response. Mm -hmm. uh, And I ached for her with the the bullying. But I related, um, you know, I can relate more with you, Anne, in my growing up and and seeing other people going through pain in my family and then taking to the journals. Matt was joking this weekend about getting rid of them all. And I was like, no, (laughs) I need to keep them. But um, in in Avril's response, uh, just being in this tough intersection, just talking about the gospel and often talking about sexuality, I see uh, with our four-year-old, two-year-old and another one coming in a month, um, just the weight uh, that the cost of living out this discipleship life that Matt and I have, that we get some some pain in, in this daily surrender and some pushback from the world. And so we're trying to raise our children as real warriors and disciple makers. And so just hearing like, okay, you can go through hard spaces, like Avril was saying with the bullying, but you can create a safe space at home no matter how the world is responding. So I was really encouraged by that. Mm-hmm. All right. So, Anne, we're going to take you on a trip, a vacation from our problems <laughs> to Goofball Island. Time for Goofball Island. And the vehicle we are taking there is a Lazy Susan because we're going to play table topics with you. And this is just how, for our listeners to get to know you better and perhaps some questions you're not usually asked. Um, and so here we go. Here's the first one. What snack in your house when it's gone sends you either to the kitchen to make it or to the store to purchase it. Like what's that thing that you got to have? Um, my husband went to town today and he said, does anybody need anything? And there were three people that said, yes, we're out of peanut butter. (laughs) (laughs) 
that is a that is a staple in our house that is low carb and um uh, we have a son with um type 1 diabetes so we need peanut butter in the house all the time okay you guys creamy or crunchy well, you know, that is always an argument. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, and we actually, there's some of us that like it with no crunch and others of us that like it with crunchy. And there's actually now that sea salt in it. And yeah. I prefer the sea salt. Oh, I feel you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. All right. Question two of three on this goofball island is the world wants to know, Anne, what is your Enneagram number and or Myers-Briggs? And do you care at all? <laughs> Oh, <laughs> I, I was thinking. I was listening to a podcast the other day with um, Andy Stanley and his daughter um, with Ian Crone, and she was the daughter was saying that doesn't everybody think that their enneagram is the worst enneagram? Probably. <laughs> I uh, Myers Briggs. I am INFJ. There you go. And uh, Enneagram, I am, yeah, I wear this on my sleeve. It's painful. <laughs> I am an Enneagram 4. Oh, yeah. Which means I don't have feelings. I am feeling. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I actually was really helpful to hear Ian on the podcast to sort of unpack that a little bit. He said, you know, fours, go ahead and give verbiage and language to precisely to other people's vague feelings. And I yeah. thought, okay, that makes me feel like, okay, my job is to take what I'm feeling and put it into words. So other people go, oh, I didn't have words for that, but that's how I feel. Yep. That, that definitely rings true. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I am a fellow INFJ4. And so I, I hear you're Uh-oh. squirming in it because I'm just always like, don't box me in. Uh, and as a four, it's so typical of us to say, oh, I, I hate being a four. I mean, I that's what fours would say. <laughs> I know. Don't throw me in a number. All right. Make make peace with yourself, yeah. says the nine in the room. Yes. Right. Two nines Both in the room. Both of the nines oh, in the room. Wow, two nines. I'm married to a nine, and I'm so see, grateful the Lord gave me yeah, a nine. That's, see, I'm a four, and I'm so grateful for my nine I'm married to. I love it. Okay. We need, <laughs> we need it. All right. The third on in this goofball island is I know your childhood included some really painful days and some really beautiful days. But what Mm. is a scene from your childhood where Anne was really Anne, where you felt like the real you peeked through some of the clouds? I think the days when I would climb up into the really old apple tree out in the backyard and hang upside down and read a book. Yeah. <laughs> that was totally. My father would come by and he would say, instead of reading what other people are doing, you should get down under the tree and go do something that other people write about. <laughs> and I thought, no, I really like reading books upside down in a tree. That makes me the happiest. So those would be the days where you just sort of escape into another world. I think when you read other people's lives, not only do you get to experience their life, it then becomes formational in your own life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's shift into the heart of the matter. Now, Anne, we ask every guest these these two questions, and it's how was the gospel, which is we flipped it around. Instead of starting with sin, we start with loved, but I am more loved than I can imagine and more sinful than I believed. How was it first good news for you? And then the second question is, how is it still? How is it still? Yes. I think I was reading the other day about somebody said people stand up and they give their testimony of meeting Jesus 20 years ago, but who gives their testimony about meeting him yesterday? And you're right. Yes. I mean, it's about, it's still good news right now. Yes. Um, I was raised in a non-Christian family and I was invited when I was nine, 10 years old 
to a Good News Bible Club <laughs> on a Dutch immigrant's back lawn. <laughs> and actually, that Dutch woman ended up becoming my mother-in-law. Hey, and I ended up marrying her ninth-born child. <laughs> hey! Her son. So, so I'm so grateful she shared that she, a woman with a really thick Dutch accent, who really wanted to share Jesus with all of the neighbor kids. And for 23 years, she ran a Good News Bible Club in her home that hosted between 60 and 80 kids. <laughs> and a whole generation of kids came to hear about the gospel. And so many of us accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, <laughs> went through that wordless book yeah. <laughs> on a porch. And um, and even now when I go into town, there'll be people who said, oh, Voss Camp, I remember going to a Good News Bible Club. And I just thank the Lord. You have no idea how many times mm-hmm. that one woman decided, you know what, I'm just going to open up my doors and share Jesus with all of the kids in the neighborhood. And she, she actually died before I before I ever started writing books at all. So she never really knew the impact mm-hmm. of her faithfulness on my own life. So mm-hmm. I am so grateful um, that I heard about Jesus in Good News Bible Club. And eventually my sister got saved. And then years later, my mom. Mm-hmm. And then many years later, my brother. So now I am just praying for my dad to still come to know Jesus. So, oh, and I think, oh. you know, I think lots of times we think the gospel is like the early alphabet of our life of faith. It's the ABCs, and now we're past it. And um, I think for me in the last year, the gospel isn't um, just the beginning of my faith. It is the breath of my faith moment by moment by moment that Jesus still takes me, that grace is the air I breathe, and I would die without it. I think sometimes for me personally, as I have gotten older, and more, more times I have fallen, more times I have made wrong decisions and got myself turned in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Jesus has become more and more precious to me. Um, so I think the kids sometimes, I hardly can get through a prayer at the dinner table without choking up. But Jesus is so, so precious to me now. I think the more, um, yeah, the more we fall. Yeah. In this walk yeah. of faith, the more we think, oh, Jesus, if I didn't have you, I couldn't keep going. Mm-hmm. I love it. I just want to ask a question right there. Um, like, because what you're saying really fits into this theme that I want to dive into, which is this life of authenticity. But what you're yeah. describing, Anne, is, is um, I hear in your words right now and even describing how you, you can't get through a prayer with your kids without crying that tells me that there is a life uh, that we don't see that isn't your platform life that Mm. is quiet and rich and is infused um, Mm. by the spirit. So, so what practices do you put into place to, I guess, just first start with just the you and Jesus place for as much as you feel comfortable sharing on this podcast, I recognize it's a platform, but how do you get to that place where it's just genuine tears in your eyes when you talk about Jesus? Like what sort of authentic practices have you put in place in the quiet, alone, and in Jesus moments? Yeah, I think um, one of the most formational uh, lives for me, studying and reading has been Eugene Peterson's. And 
um, Eugene talks so much about having congruity, that your interior life matches your exterior life. And, and that convicted me in so many ways about how do I have deep congruity? And for me, that has looked like, um, well, this past season, it's, it's been even richer where we've been doing a lot of (laughs) Daryl, actually, my husband is a far better half. Um, (laughs) we've been listening to, uh, between five to seven chapters of scripture every day. And I think it's being, we talk all the time, have we steeped in scripture? Have we sort of saturated our souls and our minds and our thoughts in scripture? Mm-hmm. And doing that on a daily basis. And then I take time every day. Um, either I use the um, day one journal app or I have an actual <laughs> analog pen and paper <laughs> journal <laughs> um, where I um where I journal and I have um, some questions that I ask myself every day um, that really are about sort of excavating my soul, mm-hmm. um, answering questions that God's asked, who do you say that I am? And then he asks Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going to? Mm-hmm. Um, so going ahead and focusing on who is God. So that's sort of, Isaiah talks about, is that not, is not the thing in your right hand a lie? And I think lots of times our thoughts are lies that are hissing untruths about God to us. So I, I write, who do I know God is? And then like Hagar, where have I come from and where am I going? Really being honest with God about where my heart's at and where my head's at. And then preaching gospel back to myself about where am I headed and where do I want to go? And then I also every day have a journal, actually, it's a, on my day one app that I use every day, um, called Gratefulness and Givenness. Mm-hmm. So I write out at least 10 things every day that I am grateful for. And then I write out all of the ways I've tried to be the gift. How have I tried to pass on the gifts? How have I lived given out into the world? And I, <laughs> that list is always far shorter. <laughs> all of the ways I am grateful. So I think, I think, um, those are formational to my faith in that it keeps me trying to, the posture of my life is cruciform, yep. that the actual cross, I want that to be the shape and form of my life, that that vertical beam, all of the gifts come down and all of my praise goes up. And then how do I live horizontal with my arms outstretched, living broken and given out into a broken hearted world? So yeah. those are things that I, I try to work in 90 minute segments and other things. And then on my 30 minute breaks, um, to do things. I think self-care and soul care isn't, I mean, some days it includes chocolate, but it isn't chocolate. (laughs) Self-care and soul care really is about self-discipline and it's the self-discipline and the consistency to be consistent. And I am, what's most life-giving is to spend time with Jesus in communion. So whether it's scripture reading and listening to scripture while I go for a walk, whether it's journaling, whether it's time in prayer, I need those rhythms. I think um, Eugene says in scripture, it's keeping company with Christ. And um, those are those those gentle, unburdened rhythms that I try to keep every single day. And that keeps me rooted in Christ and living cruciform. Mm. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing that and some of those practical pieces. I love hearing them. Now, Anne, when I, I read your book, The Broken Way, in, in two days, and I remember when I, 
when I met oh, you at every reading into <laughs> when I met you at Q a couple of years ago, you're like, Oh, I'm so sorry. You read it in two days. And I was like, No, no need to apologize. Because it was so uh it just hit me and I've heard this from other people who've read it. It's such a, a terrible, precious space where our marriage was going through some pretty intense agony and um the way that you wrote and the way that you write, I, I hear your Enneagram four, but not just your fourness, your andness. <laughs> God made you to be. But I felt like you opened the door of your heart and invited me to open mine. And we sat with each other on the floor, just weeping and looking at Jesus for our hope. And um, I was so surprised that um, like that you you authentically wrote even like about your desire to like cut, like cutting and things like that. And like I've wrestled with that in the past or just like digging my nails in my hand or things like that. And I just couldn't believe someone who has hundreds of thousands of followers and who writes these books would be would write so authentically. And so I guess like, why do you do that? Why do you choose to open up the door of your heart like that? I'd be really honest, Lori. Yeah. I was at a, a book signing in Grand Rapids. Hey. After the play released. Yes. I think it was actually the Baker Books. Book yeah, yeah. Book. And there were all of these people lined up to, and I started to weep with the horrible realization that they were all carrying my heart in their hands. Yeah. They had my book right there. And what had I done? (laughs) I couldn't take it back. It was, it was, I mean, clearly that's what you're doing when you're writing. But I think when I'm writing, I really, I'm trying to write for an audience of one. I'm trying to stay in a really transparent and vulnerable and honest place with Jesus. That he, that I open up my heart and bear it completely to him and let him come in and do painful but healing surgery on my own heart. So when I come to the page, I'm, I'm coming to do business with Jesus. Hmm. And and then, I mean, I've said it to my husband multiple times. What was I thinking? <laughs> that, that, that now goes out into the world. And, and he, he'll preach the gospel back to me. You were meeting Jesus face to face. And if he could do this work in you, you're inviting other readers to come in and say, here's my heart, Jesus, do this work in me too. So it's, um, I honestly don't think there should be any platforms for writers. There should only be, Jesus didn't have a platform. He had an altar where he came and he laid down in his life and he died for his friends. And I think for me, writing is about a place to come and be brutally honest and be of no reputation and lay your heart down and pray that out of your death, there can be other people's resurrections. Yes. Well, I know that that happened for me, even just in reading your words, because it didn't, you didn't point fingers at your own self, like it, because at least that's what I read. It's just, you're pointing at Jesus and you could just, you just invited us to sit with you. But, Mm -hmm. and I've got to imagine, so Matt and I, we've been pretty brutally honest on this podcast. Um, And then we're about to write a book. Uh, We just signed with InterVarsity just about our marriage. And it's going to be a story. Yes, to come to an altar and lay down your bare heart. And I'll be honest, I've already said it. The first three chapters, I looked at Matt and I'm like, I do not look good in this. But Mm -hmm. God, he's the only one who can when you are honest this way. 
But yeah. I guess to, I don't know, maybe it's not even caution, but what, what are the costs, which, you know, a gospel cruciform life, there's costs. What are some of the costs of this for you? Oh, Lori. <laughs> um, I think that if you're going to be a cruciform writer, yeah. you're going yeah. to bear scars and you're going, there's going to be arrows. There's going to be a crucifixion <laughs> um, and it's going to be painful, yeah. but, um, but that's what the call is. The call is to be like Jesus and Jesus wasn't elevated. He took on the, we read it yesterday in Philippians. He took on the form of a slave <laughs> and um, experienced the worst kind of death possible. So I think it's, it's saying, Jesus, I want to be so much like you that when I am face to face with you, you will press your scars into my scars and say, I know her. Yeah. And I think, I think it's really important. This is always a challenge when you share your heart in a book and your story. Your story is never told in a vacuum. Your story always rubs up against other people's stories. <laughs> How do you honor other people's stories and protect them in the midst of telling your own story? And that is, that's a space of prayer. That's a space of discernment. That's a space of going to someone and saying, this is what I've written. How comfortable do you feel with sharing that with the world? And there are some stories that won't ever be shared with the world. They are stories that um, that Jesus is creating resurrection out of those dead places without the story being told. And I think that's it's a way of honoring other people. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's times that you can tell stories in really sensitive ways that get to the point across without calling out anybody or yeah. teaching out the details of something. I think there's a way that a reader can, a reader's heart can resonate with your heart and an unspoken broken that you don't have to break down in detail. Yeah. So I think um, bring your heart to the page and ask Jesus to, to come. And I think that's what I always say to every reader is I just, I just pray that you met Jesus on the pages. Mm-hmm. So, Anne, how do you, I guess everyone, and and I love what you're saying, that no one should have a platform. It's just everyone has an audience of one. But I guess for practical purposes in 2019, most of us have some sort of platform. Like there's, we have our social media world where we're sharing things, whether it's, you know, what we're eating for dinner or kids or whatever. How... And what sort of questions do you ask yourself? Like, how do you figure out what to share? Because you're alluding right now to, okay, I'm maybe not going to share all the details of X story because that's going to hurt Y person. Like, or, you know, you want to be wise in that. So what are some of your vetting questions before you write, put something in a book or you put it on social media? Like how you're vulnerable, but I know, and so are Matt and I, but we know what we're saying. We're not you know, brainless as we're posting. So what are the questions you ask? Sometimes, generally speaking, uh, yeah, pretty much. And I didn't always do that, but I, in the last several years, there are times I won't tell a story until there is distance between when it happened and I'm telling the story. Yeah. Because sometimes my vision and my perspective will be off. And (laughs) I really won't see the hand of God the way I need to in the story, 
in the moment and perspective and distance will allow me to do that. So um, our youngest is adopted from China. Mm. We were in that story for over a year and I never shared it anywhere. Mm. And then I shared just before we went to China that we were adopting. And then I didn't share about us. We were probably four or five months home before I shared anything else about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and that what that process was like for me. And then how do I share that in a way that honors her? So I think there are things you need time to, to let something sort of ferment and ripen in your own heart yeah. before I think you bring it out into the world. Then I think... Um, I think you have to think, what is my heart motivation in sharing this? Am I doing this for accolades? Am I doing this to elevate me in some way? That's a, that's a check in your spirit to go. No, Jesus, every, he, mean, he came to be a servant. If you're sharing something, how does it serve someone else? So it has to be about serving and not about climbing any ladders. I think as Christians, we are called to be dead to all ladders and to go lower to the least and the lonely and lost. So I think it has to be about service. And I really, for me personally, sometimes I get on Instagram, I'll go quiet for weeks on end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's times where you need to be like Jesus and sort of retreat to the wilderness yeah. and and be quiet and listen. But I think the things that you need to, sh- you're, you know in your spirit, when the Holy Spirit is calling you to share something, when you have a burden and all of a sudden you're like, I have got to write this down yeah. because, These are the things that the Spirit is saying, this needs to be birthed in your heart because there are other broken hearts out there that will be healed by you sharing the brokenness and how Jesus, as the wounded healer, is putting you together. Mm -hmm. So I think the Holy Spirit is really the guide in all of this. And I think lots of times we go, well, you know, I just want a formula. (laughs) And and Jesus says, you know what? It's like um, it's like a little child who's getting close to water and they say like how close can the water can i go father and he says you know it's not about the number of feet it's about are you close enough to hear my voice Mm -hmm. and so i think we need to stay close enough to jesus all the time that he's speaking to you and you know that i'm supposed to share this story now this way and the holy spirit confirms that that doesn't mean you don't go shaking and trembling (laughs) you do but i think i think to tell a story honestly and authentically you it's exactly what you're doing, Laura. You're coming to the page with your own brokenness. If the story is only about you looking good, Ugh. that doesn't serve anybody. That that elevates and that's platform. And I, I think that's what makes the church sick in so many ways is when we wear masks. And then that makes it, not only do we look like hypocrites, but the broken heart is feel profoundly isolated and alone. And it drives, not only does it drive people out of the church, it attracts nobody into the church. So I think we have to, we like what you're doing, you are giving, being the gift, giving the gift of going first and laying your brokenness down on the page and your messiness and letting Jesus rise up out of the ashes so he alone is exalted and gets all the glory. So I think if you're going to tell a story are you willing to go ahead and lay your broken heart and your messiness and show your scars? And people might go, wow, <laughs> that's messy. But I also think it's really important, and, and I wish I had done this sooner. I think it's also really good to either have a spiritual director or a therapist who's also helping you work out things. So it's like that it's not just yeah. bringing your insanity <laughs> to the face. <page>. Yeah. <laughs> True that. I think there's a balance and I think you need readers that are going to head and reading that and saying, huh, this is how I hear it. And this is how 
this comes across to me. And I think that's why it's really important to, we, as we, yes, we retreat to the wilderness and listen to Jesus and write our own stories, but I think it's really important. We stay in community. So we understand how our words and our hearts and our stories will reverberate off other people's. There are some early drafts of our book that thank you, Lord, we didn't get contracts for that are just straight up narrative therapy. So yeah, those need to happen. It's all good. They do. They just need to be burned. Okay. But, or just save for the journal box, right, honey, that we're never getting rid of. Um, so we talk often on this podcast and, um, I was profoundly impacted by the spiritual discipline of lament, which is really authentically bearing your soul, all the emotions before God, but especially the ugly ones. How did you first learn this? Because I know you, you speak the language of lament and even, even on Instagram, I've seen you do that. Um, But how, how did you learn that and how has it authentically impacted your life? I've been called out on Instagram. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Exactly that because um, I actually started a series on the blog called um, Brutally Honest Psalms. Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, because I, th- and it started because there were pe- people walking really hard, hard journeys um, that would come to me with their questions and I would ache with their pain and how the God, like why and how come? And, and these things started to spill out. And it was also my way of trying to, come back to these people with some kind of, I think so many times people are in pain and they're limping and they're hemorrhaging and we slap bandages on them and cliches and we're trite passe kinds of verbiage for them and don't really help them. So I think my brutally on a Psalm series came out of a place of God is big enough. I mean, really my whole spiritual discipline of lament comes out of the Psalms. It comes out of David railing at God and saying things that like, I mean, that we would say, why is that in the Bible? (laughs) So when I get called out on Instagram, like you can't talk to God like that. I'm like, wait, go back to Psalms. Look at how David talks to God. Mm -hmm. So I think, and I think our churches, there's a place. I mean, I, I mean, I wrote a book about giving thanks for a thousand things. I am all about raising my hands in worship and praise. <laughs> um, but but to understand lots of times, that's a sacrifice of praise. Mm. That comes out of a broken place. So how can our churches be safe places for people to lament about brokenness and to be honest about why is, why is God allowing this sickness, this illness? Is God really good and wrestle out his sovereignty? And I think... I think, do we have practices that really root us in those Psalms, which is David's heart splayed before God. And he's, he's not only is he good, he is safe and he thinks it's good for his soul Mm -hmm. to go ahead and lament honestly. So I think, I think if our churches, our communities around our dinner tables or places that were really safe places, um, I call it stego where love is a roof. Yeah. Um, yeah. Love, love is a place where you can come in and be honest and I will be a shelter for your storm. Um, a stego safe place to say, this is, this is how, what I'm so angry with God about. Cause we, we can't really have a, a robust theology if our roots are really, really shallow and we haven't really wrestled things out with God. So I think, I think for me, that spiritual discipline of lament 
comes from every day. Actually, we have it out on a, a wooden book stand <laughs> with the, the Psalter, um, the book of Psalms out so that we have a Psalm every day that we are meditating on. That's there all day that we can all see and return to. And, mm-hmm. and David has questions for God and he shakes God and he asks God and he asks, why is his soul so downcast within him? So I think that encourages a family DNA, a spiritual DNA of honesty. And then there's a difference between lament says that has deep, pain and brings it to God and still declares that God is good. Complaint is something different. Complaint has these issues and questions the goodness of God. So I think um, we have to look at the Egyptians all the way, or the Israelites all the way through the Old Testament. This murmuring and grumbling against God is very different than David in the Psalms, who has these questions. But again and again, you see, by the time he ends the Psalm, he's back to, he is steadfast and unshakable Mm -hmm. in his knowledge of who God is. And we, we can't have that unless we are steeping and saturating ourselves in the Word, unless we are wearing the lens of the Word, our whole world warps. So, oh, yeah. So good. Well, yeah, if I can just jump in here a little bit, like you talk about David and, and just this heart that he had for God and and a man of immense, immense failure that that he was confronted with. But, but then also, uh, you know, if you think back to just the, the anointing of David, where he was even left out of the lineup, like he was, he was the shepherd. He was not, you know, kingly material yet out of that place of lowness, is, mm-hmm. is when God looked at him and said, I, I affirm you and I, mm-hmm. I'm going to raise you up. And I'm, you know, and he calls him out of that low place to, to a deeper relationship. And I can't help but think that that experience mm-hmm. of knowing God's love for him, not based on status and stature and, and feeling like he has to have everything put together, allowed him to approach God in a much more authentic way. And in doing that, it would reinforce almost like this self-perpetuating, like reinforcing of the, the, the love that God has for him, which then drives him deeper into it. And, and I feel like this process of confession and, and, and then allowing ourselves to be affirmed in our failure, that in mm-hmm. spite of everything that we've done wrong, that, that God is still so immensely in love with us. Like if, if we don't yes. have that, we, we won't be authentic. We won't be honest if we believe that in our failure, God will reject us. And I think what that was so well articulated for, and you don't need to be a four or nine did that beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> Look, everyone, <laughs> he did it. <laughs> powerful. Because when you look at David and, and he is a broken man after he's been called out by Nathan says, you're the man. And Unless you have, um, you are, we either have a choice in that moment when you're called out, you can either hide from God and put on a mask and withdraw from him Hmm. in your shame. Or you can say, I am running to God right now. And I don't know where I saw it. Someone said that we either have the mentality of, oh dear, I've messed up. Dad's going to kill me. Or, oh dear, I've messed up. I need to call dad. Hmm. And I think, um, in our brokenness, when we have messed up, you see how David doesn't run from God. He runs to God. Mm. And and he trusts that, you know what, when, when we want a do-over, 
Jesus covers us with unerasable grace. And that we listen to David repent again and again in the Psalms and, and get to the place where, like, you know, when you cannot repent enough, Jesus says, enough, it is finished. And that when we feel like we've messed everything up, underneath us are the everlasting arms that will never let us down. Yeah. So I think um, going ahead and and being in a place where you can be really driven to God with your brokenness instead of away from God. And and David is still used by God. God doesn't withdraw his spirit from David at all. Mm-hmm. Mm. So good. Um, and for people, for someone who may be listening right now and is like, okay, I, I maybe will start some of this authentic journey with mm-hmm. God but mm-hmm. when I when I think about, you know, they're like, well, I'm not in Voskamp. I don't, I don't I'm not going to write a book. I'm not going to do, you know, this posting no. even online. <laughs> yeah, you're like, please don't. <laughs> no. Um, but, they are the luckiest. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, but do we all need to be authentic with people somewhere? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe it's a dumb question, but maybe, like, I, I honestly, like, I've wrestled with that in seasons in my life. Like, come on, can't I just be like a little hobbit, like, but all, like a lonely one that just lives all by herself? Um, can't, I don't know, like, are we called to be authentic somewhere? I think we, I think we look in scripture and we are called to be in community. We are called to a table like theology where we not only break bread around the table, but we break open our hearts around the table. We are, we are called to confess our sins to one another. Um, and I think for us in our family, we have started in the last year. Um, we have, we break up to male and female and, um, small groups of two and three where we ask each other really hard questions of accountability um, that, that we get to repent and and get to say to each other like I'm a safe place for your brokenness and there is nothing that you can say that will change how I love you and I think that starts to undermine a culture of shame yep and I think we desperately need to say like whatever you say I want you to know that I am for you. And I will never abandon you. I will never leave you. You can bring anything here and there is no shame. So I think we, I think if we stay in our hobbit holes, <laughs> we, we don't preach gospel to each other. And we, we need to be in community to know that we are, we are loved unconditionally. And we need to find those people that will stand with us through thick and thin and, um, hold us, mm-hmm. preach gospel back to ourselves when Satan is hissing so loud, mm-hmm. all kinds of shame and lies. Yep. And yep. you know what? Shame is a bully and grace is a shield. So where can you be in community that is a grace space that's stego and safe? Bring your shame and be let it all be washed away with the grace of Christ. Mm. Amen. That's so good. And what we just keep hearing throughout today is just this, the necessity of authenticity as well as the cost, like no matter if it's hundreds of thousands of people who are reading or responding, or if it's, you know, just a couple, like it's scary. There is cost to breaking bread and breaking open our hearts. But there's also, I love just the the tone that I'm hearing in your home. At least the the goal that you're going for is not let's catch each other in sin. No, let's grasp each other in the arms of love and know that you are safe here, which Lord help that just be so. (laughs) 
totally safe and that, that there is no shame for any sin that you will bring because I'm in the I'm at the foot of the cross, so grateful for Jesus Christ for me. So I think when we are really aware of our own brokenness, how in the world could we cast any stones at anybody else ever? Yes. Yes. Amen. Amen. And that's just the heart of Jesus. Well, Anne, thank you so much for authentically journeying with us today. It's just been such a gift to, to have you as a guest. Well, thank you for your voices, your testimony, and your lives. You are a gift not only to this generation, but to the church. And as your voices go out to all of the nations to really, to be honest about our brokenness, because in places, I mean, we look at it, the road to Emmaus, when, when hearts are broken, when bread is broken, then Jesus is recognized in those broken places. And the eyes of our hearts are opened to see who our hope really is. So thank you for just living with broken hearts. That Mm -hmm. does have a cost for you desperately. But um, on this side of the the microphone and the screen, please know how much your heart has ministered to mine. Oh, thank you, Anne. And and likewise, just really thank you. And you all who are listening, we will connect you to Anne's books and blog and Instagram. And as we've been alluding to, it's worth a follow if you have ever experienced pain (laughs) or are right now. And if you desire a hopeful friend with you on the journey, um, I really appreciated it. Now, for those of you who are joining us next week, I have a question for you. What is a funny, ridiculous tradition your culture has? And so in this season in Michigan, in West Michigan, there's a lot of Dutch people. And you can tell because we're 90 feet tall and blonde and blue-eyed, and that is me. Um, But my Dutch siblings out in Holland, Michigan, which is about 45 minutes from Grand Rapids, they do this thing called tulip time. And people dress up in old-timey Dutch clothes, which is just like aprons and hats, but also these horrific wooden shoes and uh, they clomp and dance. And so I would love to hear some of your cultural strangeness that just makes you go, all right, people. (laughs) So please let us know. You can email us at podcast at hmhministries.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's Lori Krieg, K-R-I-E-G. Additionally, if you guys are looking to journey well alongside LGBT people, Matt and I do a workshop training, which the biggest takeaway people have from it is, yes, they learn how to walk alongside LGBT people better, but they're like, so this is just good relational care work. We basically just teach you some of like what Anne was saying, just how can we judge another, just really to look in the mirror first and uh, look at our own hearts and actions before we... Uh, dare to even dream of looking at another's hearts and actions. And so we love teaching it. It's a six hour workshop, which sounds long, but it it flies by for us and for those who walk through it. So if you have any questions or want to learn more, email us, email me at lori at himhministries.com. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure to be with you. And for all of us here at the Hole in My Heart podcast, we will see you next week. Go ahead and talk. Matt and I were talking on the way here about how 70% of Matt's brain is angles. Mm-hmm. Yep. Angles. Angles. When dads how get to, to fit a things age, into things. Oh. That's yeah. all they care about. Other such yeah. stuff. So there's that. <laughs> angles like 
garages. Like, how do I fit so much on this shelf while not throwing any of it away? Like, into your truck. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Boxes. She she did say that five percent of my brain was concerned with Rainex though. <laughs> oh yeah, so hard. Yeah, I I, I get that. Uh, so also like packing the trunk yes. when you're going on packing a trip. Packing the trunk. Oh yeah, no we... the the big things are yeah packing for the trips yeah. and the dishwasher. Oh yeah. Only men know how. <laughs> Only I know. 